Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Museo Punks, a monthly podcast that examines uh, interactivity and innovation and experimentation in the museum sector. Uh, my name's Jeff. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Suze. Hey, Suze. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am pretty good. Big month. It has been a very big month between museums and the web, and then I got to spend a few days at the Dallas Museum of Art, checking out their their institution and playing around a little bit there. And I've got the Museums Australia conference coming up tomorrow, so it's been kind of massive. What about yourself? <laughs> Things have been crazy here too. Uh, I haven't been globe trotting, but I have. Uh, I tried to get to museums in the web and never made it. It's a long story. I don't know that we want to get into it here. Year, but uh, there were some some weather issues and some um, some plane issues that uh, delayed me crazily. And yeah, uh, I was I was waiting for you to arrive so that we could launch the first episode of Museo Punks together. And I know nothing. I, I was so <laughs> excited. I was uh, you know I was looking forward to visiting Portland and catching up with all the museum uh, muse tech people. Um, and so I, I spent a, a glorious 30 hours in O'Hare Airport um, only to return back to Pittsburgh. Um, and it was, oh, what a it disappointment. Was, it was a nightmare. But yeah. anyway, I was lucky to be able to follow a lot of great insights online through Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that emerged out of out of uh, museums and the web was this idea of design. And, and, and that's where we're going to focus this week Um on on the episode but before we do that um you visited dallas right um yeah i did how was that fascinating um it was actually i didn't get to see that much of the city so when i say how is dallas the dallas museum of art was fascinating i kind of missed a lot of dallas it's a city that you need a car to get around in and i was on foot so i saw a whole lot of a couple of blocks um did you did you track down who shot jr (laughs) actually no although i did go to the sixth floor museum and see um where jfk was shot from and that was kind of amazing interesting yeah um but the dallas museum of art was really interesting they opened up um the museum to me to some extent and gave me interviews with a lot of senior staff so i got to get insights into a lot of the processes that they're happening and 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 just find out more about how the place runs and the rest of the time I spent sort of in the in the museum itself poking around watching people and it was really nice getting that balance of talking to people and getting insight and then sitting and watching to see how it applied nice i uh i i'm you know in pittsburgh here i'm kind of fortunate to be in a in a area where we can drive places relatively easily uh and so i took the opportunity to Head out to Cleveland last week to Cleveland Museum of Art to check out their Gallery One. Have you heard about this thing? Uh, I haven't stopped hearing about Gallery One. Tell me what yeah. you thought because this was a major. It, it came up a lot at museums and the web, and it's interesting to know if it how, how it all comes together as a, as a user. What's it like? Yeah, I'll drop I'll drop some links in the show notes about Gallery One. So it's basically a a technology-infused space in the museum. It's a public space. It's one of the first things you see when you walk in. Um, And uh, 
I had not, I've been hearing tons of great things about it. So, uh, you know, we're two hours away. So we loaded up a, a team of people from my museum and road tripped there for the day. Uh, and, uh, it was great. So I, I've started off by, uh, like you mentioned, just kind of sitting and watching people, how they interact with, um, the individual, uh, technology installations that they have, but they also have this massive 40 foot multi-touch wall that, um, that displays uh, every collection object that they have on view in the museum that day um, that visitors can uh, learn more information about. But then they also uh, loan iPads uh, out to visitors that visitors can then sync these objects to their iPad and take the iPad with them through the museum. Um, And it, you know, with the idea of augmenting their, their gallery experience with the object um, providing, contextual information, that sort of thing. Um, so it was really interesting to see the way people, um, the, the kind of differences between the way people interacted with the individual techno- technology installations, like, you know, touch screens that are very personal and then this communal wall. Um, and again, we, I was very fortunate to, to meet up with Jane Alexander, the head of IT there, and she, and she gave me the lowdown, some behind-the-scenes stuff. So, uh, Jane, if you're listening, thank you <laughs> so much. Um, but um, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm very envious of their back end. They they're very smartly have their systems playing together nicely, both front-end web with their collections management, with their digital asset management. I think it's really interesting what they're doing. Um, and it's a model that a lot of museums can can look to as far as uh, creating the foundation to be able to do really innovative and dynamic and compelling things. Yeah, I find that quite interesting because obviously they got a fairly significant grant in order to to do Gallery One. And one of the conversations I had a little bit at, at museums and the web was this idea of, well, what are the things that other institutions can take away from what they're doing? Mm-hmm. And so that that coordination of back end is something that you would say is a major part of that? Well, I think so, because the I mean that back end infrastructure it really needs to be solid in order to to do you know interesting compelling different things with the front end and the interpretive interactions that that all of this kind of well designed multi touch environment can can afford visitors so it's very hard to do those things without having the 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 puzzle pieces in place on the back end yeah absolutely um, what other themes did you pick up from from museums in the web? I mean, you, as you say, you were following along from Twitter and from probably blogs and things. What were the things that emerged for you? Um, so a big one was this idea of design um, and that it's it's kind of we may be entering a Muse Tech version 2.0 in that, you know, we are we're kind of coming to terms with our our back end and our infrastructure and our technology infrastructure to be able to really kind of step it up in a design capacity um you know such as what what uh the Cooper Hewitt uh team is doing um uh what Cleveland is doing um this design ideas it was a thread that you know we're talking about today but then also one of the things i i really picked up on was this idea of slow tech um, and should museums kind of embrace the mindful, slow-looking, 
type of um, type of interaction, or should we participate online in a way that the, that the platforms dictate? Right. So Twitter is very fast, and Facebook is very fast. So should museums kind of embrace that as well? And and uh, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. What about you? See, I didn't pick up on that last theme, although it sort of, in some ways coincides with this idea of whether technology should be blending into the background a little bit more or not, which is something that I picked up. I think for me, a lot of what I was getting were questions around, again, where digital sits, but also what the different roles are that are coming out of digital. So whether digital should be rather than sitting under marketing or even education, whether it should be sitting in curatorial. Hmm. Um, yeah, which which I found quite interesting. Uh, a tweet that came out of Museum Next only the last couple of days from Seb Chan's keynote was, a curator's ready for digital expansion. Digital practices are not about technology. They're about curation. And I think that's a really interesting question that starts to emerge if we're talking about where technology should be sitting is well actually a digital practices curatorial practices yeah that's uh super progressive and i i've really interesting as far as i'm concerned um you know all of these things emerging i think uh these threads that emerged from museums in the web i think uh you know you and i would like to address uh you know down the road with this podcast and hopefully bring some of those voices in to talk about um, and explore deeper those ideas. Um, and hopefully it'll get us to uh, the fall when we can go to Museum Computer Network and <laughs> have a whole new set of, of themes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, today uh, we're going to talk about design, uh, right? Um, yes. So what what spurred this design conversation? Do we have a person to uh, acknowledge as kind of publicly saying, hey, this is a secret thread? Yeah, there was... Absolutely. Someone who identified this as a secret thread being Coven Smith, who did a blog post. He was live blogging from the conference and he identified that a secret thread from MW2013 was designed in one of those posts. And I thought it was a really interesting uh, discussion to start having. Yeah, for sure. So we're continuing that discussion uh, here uh, this episode by bringing in uh, two really smart thinkers um, when it comes to design and museums and interactions. Um, the first up is Dana Mitroff-Silvers, um, who does some really interesting uh, writing and consulting around design thinking. Um, and then second up is uh, Scott Gillum, who uh, has a background in graphic design, but is really um, doing some interesting things in the um, in the web, the blurring of web and physical space design in museums. So uh, without further ado, let's, uh, let's kick off this episode with uh, Dana Mitroff-Silvers. Dana Mitroff-Silvers is a web strategy consultant and design thinking facilitator with expertise in museums, nonprofits, and educational organizations. She's the former head of online services at SFMOMA, where she oversaw the research, development, design, and production of the museum's award-winning site, sfmoma.org, for more than 10 years. Dana regularly presents at museum and technology conferences and lectures for various Bay Area institutions. Uh, a theme in her current work is how organizations, how arts organizations can, can integrate principles of human-centered design into their practice. Dana, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be with us here on episode two of Museopunks. 
Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored. <laughs> Our pleasure. So, um, uh, Suze and I, uh, in putting this episode together, we we wanted to kind of uh, take some some themes that emerged from museums and the web, which happened um, last month, and and kind of blow them out a little bit. One of which was this idea of design, um, and much of your work um, kind of focuses around design thinking in museums. Um, c- can you just for those who are unfamiliar with the term or the concept, what is design thinking? That's a that's a great question. So design thinking is a methodology and a mindset. It's a way of approaching problems with an innovative approach and a process. It's not design with a capital D, which is the way I've always experienced design in my career in museums. It's more of a, a process and a mindset that I'm really excited about sharing and, and spreading into the museum sector. Okay, so if this is a, a process and a mindset, why is it relevant to museums? It's relevant to museums because museums traditionally approach problems in, in, a, in a way that's, that we've done for years, that we, we come up with an idea or a solution and we go and we start working on it without stepping back and thinking about who we're making things for, who we're, who we're designing an exhibition for, who we're creating a brochure for, who we're creating an app for, and why we're doing it. So the thing that attracted me to design thinking is it's a way to, before we jump in and say, oh, we know what the problem is and we know what the solution is, it's this process to help you kind of step back and think about the needs of the people for whom you are making a digital product, an experience, a service, and and approach the the creation of that in in a very um, precise methodology. Awesome. So, um, is you mentioned a process? Um, is this process kind of um, a formula that ex- that exists in design thinking across the board? Is or is it something that is kind of um, dependent on the institution, or uh, how does the process of it all work? So design thinking is, it's, it's very much a process. And there are five steps that, that you typically go through when you approach a problem from a, a design thinking, with a design thinking point of view and a design thinking mindset. And the one thing I have to say about design thinking is it's a little ironic that we're talking about it because it's, it's something that you really have to experience by doing it. So, so I, I can talk about it, but the, the way that most people really get it is by, by actually going through the phases of this process. And the, the phases are empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And those phases are all referred to in the paper that I wrote for Museums in the Web. So these are five steps that you you go through when you're approaching a problem. And they're not always linear. You, it's about iteration and repeating and testing. And so you may go through a project and realize you need to prototype several times. So you'll circle back through and prototype and test and prototype and test. But it's this, this process that starts with empathy, which when I was introduced to design thinking, this is what got me so jazzed up and excited about it because it's about building empathy for your visitors, your users, your members, your donors, whoever your institution is making a thing or an experience for. So, for example, before we might an institution might say, let's go make an, an app. 
you would you would stop and go talk to the people for whom you're making the app to build empathy for them to understand what their needs are and what what makes them tick before you jump into the solution. I'm really glad you sort of mentioned that because I'd been curious about this idea of of empathy and what it actually means. So it's really trying to put yourself into someone else's mindset. Is that what you're suggesting? Yes, absolutely. It's it's about really understanding the needs of of someone else and and then developing insights around those needs. So I'm trying to think of a, a good example to give you. So a need of a visitor to SFMOMA might be to have a spiritual experience with a work of art. Their need might be to to go visit a Rothko and have a, a, a spiritual, this is for them, this is like going to church, going to the museum. So you're, you're starting with their need before you decide what, what is it that you're going to, to make for this person. You're understanding what their needs are. Another need of a visitor to, I'm thinking of modern contemporary art museums might be to not feel stupid around, around works of modern contemporary art because we know works of modern contemporary art are very challenging. So a visitor's need might start with something as fundamental as, I, want, I don't want to feel stupid. So then understanding their needs, then you can think about, well, how can we meet this need? A visitor doesn't want to feel stupid. Oh, so, so maybe we're, we're providing them with tools to help them better understand the art, the artist, the process, to meet that most basic need. So before we say, oh, we're going to make an app, or oh, we're going to make a... Uh, printed material, it's stepping back and understanding that need and then thinking about, ah, okay, so their need is to not feel stupid. Then you think about, well, well, why is that? What, what, what is making this person tick? How can we meet that need? And you go through these, these phases of this process where you're building the empathy for, for this visitor. Then you're defining what is the, what is the real problem we're trying to solve here? And then you start ideating on ways to, to meet that, meet that challenge. And then you build. I'm sorry, I was just saying Then you're building prototypes and testing. Interesting. So, Dana, what are some ways that museums can kind of get at that all-important information of, of a, addressing the need? Is it, is it user testing, focus grouping, or is it, um, are those some methods you can, that museums can get at that, or, is, or is it, are there other tactics? That's a, I'm glad you mentioned uh, focus groups because that's one way that museums traditionally have approached the understanding their visitors is by doing focus groups. But this is about this is really about being an anthropologist and going into the galleries of your institution and having one-on-one conversations with visitors. So it's so it's not about the 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 large group think of bringing in your group facilitator and outside facilitator. It's about going and having a one-on-one conversation with visitors and start to really get at their, their most basic needs. And, and the way that this is most traditionally done is, is through interviews and also observations. So going and watching people in the galleries, watching how they're using whatever technology they're bringing with them, whatever guidebooks or how they're interacting with other people in the galleries. So it's about really doing ethnographic observation and interviews and, and getting to talk to individuals in, in really open-ended, deep conversations. And that's how oh. we did this at SFMOMA, was, was going into the galleries and talking to, to visitors and having really deep conversations with them. It sounds like this 
as a as a method is useful for particular types of problems is it is it for all sorts of problems or is it for particular types of problems then that's that is such a great question because one of the points we made in our museums and the web presentation is this is not always going to be the right approach for every institution or every challenge there might be times when you know that your institution has to make, I keep using the example of an app, it's really on my mind because I keep hearing of so many institutions launching new apps. And it might be that you you have a funder who says that they want to see this app happen, it's coming from the, the leadership of the institution, and this you may not... This may not be a possibility for your institution. This may not be an approach you can take. But there are definitely times when, when there's an opportunity to, to further shape the direction of a project or step back a little bit and say, whoa, wait a minute, is this really what we want to go invest all our time and our energy and our budget in before you, you start working on the project? And even if there are projects for which you already know, okay, we know the final ac- outcome has to be a website, it has to be a mobile tour, there are still ways to infuse this mindset into the development of those kind of projects because the whole notion of of prototyping and using rough prototypes and testing them is not always that common. I find in a lot of institutions, we work so hard in these beautiful beautifully executed final products instead of putting out raw and finished work that we can test and adjust. And I know a lot of institutions, lots of money and time is put into developing final, beautiful products. And by then it's too late. You're too invested to, to go tweak it and iterate it and adjust it. So it's about this mindset of it's okay to, to have a prototype that you test before you build your final product, whatever it is. So in preparing for this episode, um, I, I did some reading online about design thinking. And I, um, I, one of the things that I, um, I, I gleaned was that it's, it's very much about eliminating silos and collaboration. Um, and silos are definitely notorious in the museum world. So how do you think institutions can begin to avoid or take, tear down silos and start working cross-departmentally as collaborators? Um, or is that even something that they should be aspiring to? I think absolutely this is about one of the terms that is is used a lot in describing design thinking is it's a notion of radical collaboration. And, and, and it's also very interdisciplinary. So the idea of bringing together a team of people from different departments in the institution is, is really at the heart of design thinking. Because I think you get so many more interesting ideas, so much more creative thinking when you're, you're bringing together people who have different points of view and different perspectives. And you also have some more conflict and tension in the discussions that take place instead of taking everybody who's already thinks in a similar fashion, has similar working styles. This is about radical collaboration of teams. So the, a little more background on, on my, my introduction to design thinking and how I came to be doing this and, and using it is I took a course at the Stanford Hasso Plotner Institute of Design, which is also called the D School. And this was a course, it's an executive education course. And people come from around the world to take this course. And I was extremely fortunate to be able to attend it on a nonprofit discount. And I was put into these teams with people who are executives from Procter & Gamble, 
from Intuit, from Citrix, Shell Oil, and there were people from every department in these organizations, and and I was in the mix with these people and getting these different perspectives and really breaking down the traditional silos of how an organization um, organizes itself is really crucial to design thinking. And then I did a partnership with the Stanford D School in which we we had a group of graduate students use SFMOMA as their their case study their, for their project. And the the class was an interdisciplinary class. So there were students from law, medicine, engineering, architecture, for education, and they all worked together in these interdisciplinary teams on designing the challenge of how might we how might we design a museum and engage visitors when the actual museum is closed because SFMOM was about to close. And these were interdisciplinary teams that were put together and came up with incredibly divergent, (laughs) radical solutions to this challenge. That's a very long-winded answer that, yes, this is about breaking down silos and putting together interdisciplinary teams and mixing, mixing people together. Um, I'm really interested in that idea of of these teams, though, and I guess team functioning, because I wonder whether, do the teams function in different ways from a normal internal museum team might? Is there, if you're pulling people from different areas in the museum, does, does the team itself work differently? The, the basic idea is to have teams of people from different departments with different roles and even different ways of approaching problems so that you're you have different perspectives because the one of the one of the principles in design thinking is the idea of constraints and around having constraints when you're trying to brainstorm a solution to a problem and sometimes that actually makes you have more creative ideas if you're if you're brainstorming uh, brainstorming something and then you you throw in the constraint okay what if we only had a hundred dollars to do this what if we only had a week to do this and 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 that forces you to actually be more creative and expansive and the idea of mixing up teams I think can have the same function because you're bringing in people with different perspectives. One person might think, well, my way of tackling this problem would be to to build something. I would build 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 some kind of digital solution. And another person on the team might think, well, I would actually solve this problem by creating a, a, a experience in real life. I might solve it with something that the visitor services team does to work with a, a visitor who feels intimidated around the art. And and bringing in these different perspectives, I think, creates tension. And then and then it's it's sorting out all of those possibilities and prototyping them. And I don't know if that's really answering your question. I think it's definitely um, speaking from experience, my museum, the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. just just um, we're about to close our first um, design thinking experiment. It's a a project called Oh Snap, Your Take on Our Photography. And it really brought together a cross departmental team, everyone from curators to educators to technologists to art handlers to, um, you know, and and basically that group kind of hashed out and brainstormed and worked out ideas and expounded upon them and, and put together this project that really turned out to be quite a great success for the museum. Um, and so I can totally understand where you're coming from with that, with that idea of getting, getting cross departmental collaboration together to kind of really push things forward. And I think one of the pieces of that is, is, People have to be willing to try this. You, know, you can't force together those cross-departmental collaborations if, 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 if 
if people are not game for it. So the, the, one of the ways to try to do this in your own institution is, is start small and, and pick a few people who are like, yeah, let's, let's do it. I'm, I'm game for it. Let's, let's go for it and let's mix it up. And, and there are, there are always going to be a small group of people. It may not be everyone in the institution who are going to be game for this and willing to try it. And I think that's one of the ways that, that, that this can, this can unfold in an institution, but to have it start like, okay, everybody's going to be collaborating cross-departmentally. I know that that's pretty much a pipe dream in most institutions, but it's starting with the, the, the small groups of people who are, who are open and interested. And when I was doing this at SFMOMA, I was bringing in folks from education, some from curatorial, from marketing communications, graphic design, uh, interpretive media, web, and we were, we were mixing it up, but it was the folks who, who were, wanted to try it out. It wasn't like everybody must do this. It's more, let's, let's start it out. Let's consider it a prototype and see how this works. Okay. Is there anything else with this kind of approach that you think people should know as they sort of enter into it? If they're trying to bring it into their institution, if they think this might be a solution to a problem, is there anything else that you think they should know from the outset that you have learned uh, yes, I think one of the the really important parts is having somebody else who's trying to do this at their institution so that you can talk to each other and support each other because it's not always easy and it's not like this is this miracle process that you bring into your institution and everybody's collaborating and, and <sighs> it, it, you know, you've, you've got to it really helps to have a peer at another institution and they don't even have to be someone in a museum. For example, I've been working with a, a, a friend who's at the George Lucas Educational Foundation who's trying out design thinking in her organization. So we're talking to each other constantly about how how are you doing this? What What's working for you? What's not working? And now that I, I went through this executive education program at Stanford, we have a Facebook group. So we could talk to each other about about how people are doing this in different different sectors. And I think finding a, a buddy in another museum and just starting really small, saying like, hey, I'm going to try doing empathy interviews in the galleries. Will you try it too? And, and, and share stories and see, see how it goes. So you're not, you're not going it alone. Because I think that, that that can be really challenging. So Dana, uh, if somebody wants to learn more about you or connect with you or um, find out more about design thinking, where can they do that online? Well, I set up a site, me and the, my co-authors from the Stanford D School, we, we launched a site at Museums in the Web, and it's designthinkingformuseums.net. So all one word, designthinkingformuseums.net. And it was a site that we, we pretty much built it in a day, and we considered it a prototype, and it's a resource for museums to learn about design thinking, read case studies, get more information, more resources, and, and even learn about if they want to do workshops. That's something that I've been doing also is going into institutions and teaching workshops. So that's, that's a good place to start. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with us here on the second episode of Museo Punks. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to following all the awesome stuff you're putting out online. Thank you so much.
Scott Gillam is the manager for web presence for the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, as well as vice president of web for the Society of Graphic Designers of Canada. Scott's been a professional mentor for Film Training Manitoba's Transmedia Production Lab, a bleeding edge think tank for graphic design and filmmaking using new media, cinematography, interactivity, and nonlinear storytelling. He specializes in design and technology consultancy for design studios, corporations, nonprofits, and private business. And he's also been an instructor for new media at the School of Art, University of Manitoba, and advanced graphic design program at Red River College located in Winnipeg. Scott, you're the manager for web presence for the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, which is a new museum project that's scheduled for inauguration in 2014. Can you tell us a little bit about the museum and your involvement with it? Uh, Thanks. Uh, I'm uh, quite happy to be here today. Um, A little bit, I guess, about the museum. The uh, purpose of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is to explore the subject of human rights. Um, It's special but not exclusive reference to Canada, uh, and it's in order to enhance the public's understanding of human rights, uh, promoting respect for others and to encourage reflection and dialogue. Uh, And what that really means uh, when you get down to it, and I actually discussed this just last week on uh, the anniversary of our uh, of our blog, which is documenting uh, both the architecture and construction as well as some of the issues we're exploring. Uh, the Museums Act, when we think of museums, we don't necessarily think of social change. Um, but specifically in the Museums Act of Canada, uh, Section 3 states that, you know, not only do they play an essential role individually and together with other museums and like institutions, Uh, in preserving and promoting the heritage of Canada and all its peoples throughout Canada, Uh, but it also contributes to the collective memory and the sense of identity of all Canadians. Uh, It also needs to be a source of inspiration, research, learning, and entertainment, which sometimes can be seen as, you know, sometimes is interpreted as as not necessarily the role of a museum, uh, but as entertainment that belongs to all Canadians and provides in both official languages, uh, English and French, a service that is essential to Canadian culture and available to all. Um, Cool. So that, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, you know, with a a project like this... um, you know, uh, significant design decisions are, are made along the way. Can you walk us through your personal or professional design process and maybe highlight any important kind of milestones along the way or, um, you know, how you've implemented your process there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in my area of responsibility, and I should mention that, uh, you know, I work under uh, Corey Timpson as our uh, director of uh, design, new media and collections uh, at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Uh, and where, uh, you know, we often get asked when we talk to other institutions, you know, why is collections uh, mixed in with uh, design and new media? Uh, and that's largely because our institution, with being uh, based on an intangible subject matter, uh, you know, the storytelling, a lot of the storytelling that takes place within our institution is dialogic. Uh, and when we talk about interactivity, we're not maybe uh, thinking of it in terms of, say, a passive web experience, but really where museum informs visitor, visitor uh, informs visitor, uh, and there's uh, a presence of conversation uh, between our audiences. So what what that folds into uh, in my role is really supporting the technology efforts for everything that's online. Uh, So whether it's uh, the way we deliver content in gallery, uh, what we publish to the website, and also to our mobile program. 
So in terms of the design process then, I mean, that's obviously you're trying to balance a lot of different um, stakeholders in that. So how do you how do you design for that? Well, in many ways, uh, it follows a, a standard design model uh, where you are really, uh, first of all, interviewing stakeholders, doing environmental scans, uh, taking a look at what really everything from the learning objectives, from learning and programming, uh, the desired outcomes from research departments, uh, and then moving into um, you know a very similar client model that would be followed with a lot of other interdisciplinary teams. Uh, whether you're dealing with a producer that wants to tell a story through film or whether you want to uh, uh, tell a story through a blog entry, uh, you're looking at you know, your subject matter, you're defining uh, what some of the outcomes you want to have. Uh, is it a linear story you want to tell? Is it a nonlinear story? How many entry points do you want for uh, a visitor or someone who's experiencing it virtually to have? And then you enter that ideation phase where you start to think about, you know, how you're going to illustrate those concepts. And then you, you know, and still following that traditional model of, of rapid prototyping, going through iteration, going through testing. Scott, do you think that your background in graphic design has impacted the way you approach the process? Certainly, certainly. I think even before entering design field, my undergraduate degree was, was in fine arts. Um, so I came from more of a conceptual uh, and art history background. Then after completing design school, it certainly ties a lot of those pieces together. And really, in current you know, museum experience, it really is tying that communication design, you know, leveraging, leveraging digital storytelling to allow people to enter a collection. Yeah, I'm quite interested in that, that aesthetic connection. I, I know a lot of people from this sector have really diverse backgrounds, but a lot of them have had some kind of visual um, visual background, whether it's through graphic design or fine art. Um, Coven Smith wrote a post at Museums and the Web, which was about design as a secret thread from the conference. It's what's inspired this discussion. But on his post, Tim Ray makes a comment that Donald Norman's famous mantra, attractive things work better, illuminates the parallels between attention to design details and user experience. And I'm interested as how much the aesthetics of a product enhances its usability. Well, I think uh, we we come to see that every day when we think about uh, the kind of devices even that you uh, that you watch people interact with on a daily basis, whether that be you know an iPhone or an Android device or tablet computing or uh, what type of products that we see uh, everywhere from store shelves to kiosks that are in gallery. You know, people are drawn to aesthetic choices, and that's how we interpret the world around us. And so when you look at a traditional museum model, that can be uh, an experience can be centered around objects that concern art and uh, conserve, you know, there's a direct correlation between the aesthetic uh, and the experience and some of the messaging that's involved. Uh, And with our museum, there's both this historical concept of human rights, which in itself is still a relatively new field, but then it's, of course, interpreting that and uh, leveraging the material in a new way and also being reflective in a contemporary sense where we're not an atrocities museum. Uh, we are a museum that is about both uh, you know, the progression of human rights 
and that balance in the storytelling between both the positive and the negative uh, of human rights. And so, you know, how we treat that aesthetically, you know, design plays a very large role uh, in really the successful delivery of those stories. Cool. Scott, where does, where does user input, i.e. usability testing, where does it fall on a scale of importance with respect to the designer's vision, right? Um, is, is, is that something that you kind of uh, incorporate along the way, or, or, or do you have a very strong kind of designer hand in this? Yes. Uh, in terms of usability, you know, given our subject matter, we've taken great strides in uh, making our making our exhibits and making our interactives accessible. Uh, and what that means is uh, we have an inclusive design uh, advisory council, uh, which combines uh, people with uh, various uh, degrees of aptitude that come together that look at, you know, everything from tactile models of the exhibits to reviewing how we're, uh, how some of the storytelling has taken place uh, in the exhibit program, both from, a physical space and also uh, on the uh, in you know on the in the virtual space. So when we talk about you know whether it's uh, using NFC chips to deliver uh, audio or whether it's um, uh, tallable interfaces uh, to support uh, having a, a keypad that's assistive, uh, so that if somebody is trying to use a touchscreen, that there is also you know alternative devices, mm-hmm. but not just to deliver you know. The way we approach it, you know, it's not enough, you know, making something accessible isn't creating an exhibit and then positioning a ramp so that someone in a, in a wheelchair or some sort of assisted device can access it. It really has to be inclusive from the ground up so that there's really some poetry of the experience that's transferable uh, regardless of what your sensory uh, perceptions will be. I think that idea of poetry of the experience is a really interesting one. I mean, this idea of attractive things work better. How early in the design process should people consider the aesthetics of the product? Is that something that only comes near the end of the process or should that be coming quite early in, in, in the process of design? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really great, uh, a really great question. And I think in terms of traditional design thinking, you know, it really has to be uh, baked in at the beginning. When you when you plan for it from the start, uh, you usually find that you can be much more strategic and effective in your storytelling. And in the long run, change always costs you. As as you prototype and as you start to test, um, you know, a design deliverable, trying to add that accessibility at the end always ends up endearing some sort of band-aid solution or you end up making, you know, some concessions where you know, you start to sacrifice um, certain elements or you find that, you know, somehow you feel that certain concepts are getting simplified or dumbed down to fit uh, into a certain mold. Whereas if you really think about it from the beginning, you know, when you, when you empathize and when you think about your audience, you're, when you get to the ideation phase, you're able to be much more effective in being inclusive in your design process. Yeah. So do you think it's possible to put too much emphasis on the the prettiness of things over, uh, you know, with respect to its usefulness, you know, especially with technology where we're kind of always blinded with the with the bells and whistles and the beauty of these things sometimes. Um, 
and that can certainly affect usability in a negative light. Um, what what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, there's always there's always the risk that something can become you know overproduced, mm-hmm. I guess, or overconsidered. Usually in museums, we either lack the resources of the budget or the budget to, to usually realize those types of scenarios. Right. Um, but I think from a design standpoint, it's always a question of does it really address the, the visitor's needs? Um, you know, uh, I was in, reading an interesting article this morning on the progression of, uh, of uh, design for touchscreens and how, uh, you know, the difference between sort of the metro type interface that's becoming quite pervasive and, and what, uh, you know, the original iPhone interface was like uh, in 2007 and right. just how, you know, the reason why the buttons were made to look shiny and made to look round was because there was no device that was using that kind of tactility, um, you know, that was using a, a smooth glass surface and trying to imply um, that tactility of a button set um, or those transformations. And now that there's this uh, imbued uh, persistence of experience, uh, regardless of you know, the manufacturer of that device, people are now quite accustomed to touchscreens. And so that aesthetic changes and evolves. So, you know, and, and as the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. So, you know, designers do play a very uh, consistent role uh, in being able to push those concepts forward and to actually facilitate people's interactions with, uh, with conceptual uh, practice, whether that be in a museum or whether that be, um, you know, outside that experience. Um, a couple of minutes ago, in one of your earlier answers, you mentioned empathy. And when we were talking to Dana Mitroff-Silvers about her work with design thinking, one of the things she talked about was the importance of empathy in that process. How much does the design of a product affect the emotional connection people have to it beyond just the aesthetic or the visual? I mean, how much do you think with the museum, for instance, the design decisions that you're making will affect people's emotional connection to it? I mean, it has, it has a, you know, where that empathy really does play a role. I mean, their aesthetics do imbue an emotional impact, um, you know, so there, there does have to be, especially depending on the subject matter, you really do have to deliver to an audience, you know, is it, is it something that you want? You know, do you want a, uh, an optimistic reaction? Do you want curiosity? Are you setting the stage to ready them for some, some form of impact or, you know, is the experience serene? Um, you know, those are the types of decisions that designers have to go through. And unless you've really gone through, um, you know, those first design phases where you're defining the problem and defining your audience, uh, deliverable at the end is really is really dependent on your ability um, to emotionally connect. Uh, and that, you know, that also flows in the communication design. What type of language do you use? How accessible is it? How legible is it? Products have personality. Um, museum collections have personality. You know, the personality of the curator as to how, uh, you know, a collection is put together uh, and displayed. It does all borrow from the theatricality uh, of presentation. Cool. Well, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, if somebody wanted to connect with you online or learn more about your museum, where might they do that? Uh, you can see us online at the cmhr.ca, which is the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. 
You can find me on Twitter at pushdesignca. The website is predominantly focused on on the construction, and we do have our blog there, which discusses uh, everything from our collection uh, process to the architecture to the exhibit program. Uh, and uh, and we look forward to launching our inaugural website in uh, early 2014. Awesome. Thanks so much, Scott. Great. Thanks a lot. All right, Suze, uh, some really interesting thoughts there from both Dana and Scott. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'm already looking forward to going back and listening again because I think there are some real nuggets um, of interesting stuff in that. Yeah. And so we would also, you know, I, we should mention that we would love to hear from the audience about this. Um, we do have an open comment thread online um, pertaining to this episode. Uh, you can go to museopunks.org slash zero two. Um, let us know what you think. Uh, engage with, with each other. Um, if, if you agreed with some things that were said, if you disagreed, let's, let's get the conversation going. So, um, Again, museopunks.org slash zero two. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, So, Suze, where can can people uh, find you online other than museopunks.org? People can find me online via Twitter, which is at shineslike, or they can find me on my blog, and that's probably the easiest place, which is museumgeek.wordpress.com. What about you, I, uh, as, as previously mentioned in episode one, I am static made on the internet, Twitter app.net.com. Um, and, uh, so that's a wrap for episode two, uh, looking forward to episode three. Suze, have a great month. And vice versa. This has been a lot of fun.